Hello and welcome to Unsafe Space. Today is a special pilot episode of a series that I would like to do or I'm thinking of doing with my friend Chris. You guys may recognize him or recognize his sultry, sexy voice, I think the ladies described it as, from an interview that Carter and I did with him earlier this year. Um, Chris is still a bit, I'm going to say camera shy. Maybe it's more protective of your identity. Is that it? Yes. Um, I'm also a crime fighter, so I do have to protect my, <laughs> my daily identity. <laughs> so you have to be, you have to be incognito. I like this art that you've done. You, Thank you. Made you. This. Yes, I did. Uh, I love the nineties, eighties, nineties. So I, uh, thought I'd make, uh, a uh, image similar to to how I look, and uh, yeah, that's it. It is very. There's something very '90s about it, which yeah. I like. Yeah. So speaking of which, we this show we kind of wanted to do because you were one of the mo- biggest pop culture people that I know. When I say pop culture people, I mean you're usually more tuned into what's going on in movies and, and uh, video games and comic books than I am. And you kind of help keep me a little bit up to date, although you haven't been very successful in roping me into watching all of Star Trek yet. Oh, but you will. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I grew up, uh, I, was, I always joke I was raised by the TV. Not that my parents are bad parents. I thank them actually. It made me the man that I am today. But uh, yeah, I grew up on like 80s, 90s stuff. Uh, it's been a big part of uh, my uh, personality, a uh, big part of what's inspired my art. And uh, it's been quite a journey seeing what's been happening going on with uh, uh, pop culture at the moment and uh, the politics that's kind of being pushed into it. Uh, they've kind of taken something that used to really bring a lot of people together and are now trying to divide people through it, which is just, it's, it's quite sad. But uh, I thought for our show, we could uh, talk a little bit about that, of course, but also try to celebrate some of the good stuff that's still happening and stuff from the past as well, because uh, we certainly want to kind of uh, bring attention, bring some light to, to some of the good stuff that's kind of getting overshadowed by a lot of the bad stuff. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about, speaking of being someone who really appreciates the art from the 80s and 90s. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were discussing with me the other night about censorship in art and entertainment in the 90s and the lessons that you took from it for what's going on today? Yeah, so uh, when you think about the 80s and uh, kind of early 90s, it was kind of an edgy time. You had a lot of comedy and music that kind of pushed the limits of what was considered acceptable speech at the time. And I think this kind of pushed back against uh, those standards uh, really kind of fed into those genre forms, uh, medium forms, and kind of spread out to other mediums. This kind of anti-authoritarian, kind of you know, anti-authority um, energy that kind of spread to uh, graphic design and uh, marketing commercials and things. So specifically the rap and uh, some of the comedy stuff that in the late, mid eighties, I guess, is when uh, you start seeing a kind of a big push for censorship or at least a a move to try to limit exposure uh, to some of the uh, art, like with the uh, PMRC, Parents Music Resource Center, which had uh, Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife, and uh, has some wives and some other uh, congressmen, uh, part of this group, but they had brought um, some singers from um, some various musical bands like Dee Schneider from Twisted Sinister and some other bands uh, just in front of uh, some congressional committee and uh, really kind of grilled them. And, and they, were, they were acting under the assumption that music was kind of subverting uh, a lot of the morals and things. And yeah, sometimes you can kind of <laughs> see that with some of the music that's happening, but at the same time, again, it is covered under you know freedom of speech, of course. And so, uh, I can understand the concern that a lot of them had, uh, kind of conservative uh, movement at the time had, and I understand the kind of culture war that they were re- re- uh, waging uh, at that time that I would say they lost. Um, and well, they- let, let me interrupt you, D. Snyder from Twisted Sister, 
what was his position? He wasn't in favor of the censorship. No, he wasn't. Uh, they specifically brought up some some song in which they were accusing, I think they were saying that it encouraged suicide. And uh, he was saying that, you know, it's, the lyrics don't encourage suicide. And he says that people think that, that says more about them than it does about their actual music. So if you actually uh, listen to his um, uh, testimony, he's actually uh, pretty, pretty smart dude. And I think that kind of took a lot of people back as well, thinking that, uh, he was just kind of a dumb, you know, metalhead because, you know, he was wearing all this makeup and he's got the crazy hair and stuff. And so he held his own and he, he's he's actually a religious guy, too, oddly enough. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was kind of interesting. But um, from there, you kind of saw it moving towards rap because rap started uh, really emerging in that, like, mid-80s, late-80s. And you start seeing introduced to more ur- or less urban artists. Uh, audiences outside of urban areas and really start seeing some of the more vulgar type of rap like two life crew that came out which uh, actually uh, brought down some wrath from some conservatives particularly in florida where they actually banned i think the county banned the sale of one of the uh, two life crews albums and they actually arrested a um, um album a uh, record store owner for selling the the album and two live crew i believe got arrested for performing uh, one of the songs uh, at some concert down in florida which it, they got they got released there was no charges but they um you also saw uh, the fbi send uh, letters to nwa's um record company because they had the song f the police Oh, yeah. And um, there was actually some police in, I think it was California, that actually refused to work the concerts because of that song. And so some of the concerts, they, dates they had to cancel because uh, the cops didn't want to be uh, um, there at all. And so- wow. Just, okay, just think about where we've come culturally, where mm-hmm. you had towns banning the sale of two live crew records. And now we have all of culture celebrating WAP. Yeah. yeah. And, and you had police refusing to work security at concerts because of the song F the police. Mm-hmm. But now you have widespread, or at least in the cultural gatekeepers, maybe not in the, the public at large, but in the media and the entertainment and the uh, Democratic Party, you seem to see this support now culturally for defunding the police. Like, what a jump we've made. Yes, it's crazy. And <laughs> speaking of uh, WAP, uh, Cardi B did interview Joe Biden. So I don't know if you saw that. Fantastic. No, I did not. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it was it was heavily edited. Shocking. <laughs> but it, this is this is where we're at. This is the uh, you remember, like the coolest thing back in the early 90s when Bill Clinton went on Arsenio Hall. And now I guess the cool thing is to be interviewed by a former stripper who admits that she would lure men in with the promise of sex to rob them. Yeah. Yes. So we, Did she drug them too? I don't know if she drugged them. Oh. She may have. Um, either okay. drugged them or got them drunk or something and then robbed them. But yeah, you, you had a lot of uh, kind of push to, to censor hip hop and rap uh, at the time in the 90s. And then you had a lot was going on with comedy. Certainly you remember a lot of the controversy with Andrew Dice Clay. Uh, yeah, Married with Children, like the whole Fox network really at the time that it came out was very controversial. A lot of people forget how controversial it was, like The Simpsons. The Simpsons yeah. got a lot of flack because they yes. had Bart who talked back to Homer who <laughs> told Homer to eat his shorts. And you had a lot of parents <laughs> saying, we can't have a cartoon character telling his dad to eat his shorts or else we're going to have real life kids telling their parents to eat their shorts. Logically, of course. And so uh, that was. I forgot about that until you told me that there there really was this cultural pushback against the Simpsons. That was Mm -hmm. considered a little edgy and taboo. You know, he he talked back and he talked back to teachers. Yeah, it was it was they called the Anti Cosby Show, and I think there was a was it a Rolling Stones cover they had Bill Cosby holding up like a uh, shirt wearing a shirt I think with Bart Simpson on it. And this is, it was interesting because at that time, the Cosby, you know, was, show was coming to the end. I think it ended early 90s. And so you really started to see the uh, kind of interest of Americans kind of change towards, you know, sitcoms and characters on there, uh, Married with Children. 
uh, CERN had a lot of controversy. There was a mother, I think she was in Michigan, who objected to that type of contact being shown at you know prime time on Sunday nights. So she actually started a campaign to write towards uh, all the advertisers of uh, married with children and. Uh, most of them wrote back and they were saying, oh, we, we, didn't, we don't know, we didn't know about the content they had on the show. It doesn't align with our brand values. Wow. But I think only, I think only like maybe a couple of them removed their ads. The other ones just kept their ads going. Fox ended up moving the show to, I think about an hour later, kept it on Sunday, just an hour later, but the ratings went up. So it had the opposite effect. Mm. <laughs> it's like the Streisand effect. Yes, yeah. yes. And that, I think that's, you know, with comedy and, and rap music, I think both of those benefited from, like you said, the Streisand effect. And so uh, it, it's really interesting going from those uh, days when you had so many uh, music and TV shows that uh, had a, a great deal of uh, people that were against them but felt that they were kind of losing um, the influence of society in terms of trying to maintain the moral um, system, moral code, moral ethics uh, that existed at the time. And like I said, I, I love, you know, hip hop. I love uh, a lot of comedy shows. Married with Children is one of my favorite shows from, from that time period. But at the same time, I could kind of see what happened with it. As we talked about with rap, you can say the same thing kind of with like a little bit of comedy because Again, with Married with Children, I love Married with Children, one of my favorite shows, but at the same time, if I'm going to be honest, it's probably the first show I can really think of that kind of featured an emasculated father, really. You're right. And, you know, none of the characters, they're all lovable. They're lovable losers. They all have major flaws. Uh, So I wouldn't say it's as bad as, you know, today, oftentimes when it's the white male characters that are portrayed in such a negative light, but the the women characters or kids that, you know, know better than uh, uh, the father. But yeah, I think it kind of set the stage uh, for a lot of that stuff. And so, again, I have mixed feelings. Like, I I love that time period, but I can see how it led to to what's uh, occurred today. So why do you think, because why do you think that it, that the censorship that was coming from the conservative side, I would say at that time in the nineties, why did they lose the culture war? They were trying to censor in a way what we got to see and watch and listen to. And today it's coming from the left and the left seems to be succeeding in a lot of ways where the conservatives didn't. So what, what's the difference there? Uh, I think that that culture war they're fighting it really I guess started more in the 60s and I think by that time it, it was pretty much over and that was kind of the last attempt to try to use the the, the state to try to enforce uh, certain morals on society and they'd already lost and uh, I just think a lot of people's uh, view towards um, themselves, the, the, the world just kind of changed through a lot of the, the entertainment um, at the time. Um, there was a, there's a channel on YouTube, I think I told you about, called Blackfield, and uh, it's a conservative guy who watches, uh, he reviews a lot of movies, particularly movies that uh, um, kind of have a lefty bent, and he talked about how um, the correlation between a lot of movies that came out in the 60s that uh, show women getting divorces and how the divorce rate in America kind of uh, increased as we start to see more movies featuring these, you know, quote unquote, empowered women. And so um, I think that that definitely had a fact. I'm not saying it's the only reason because, you know, I'm not one of those people that thinks that entertainment is the sole driver of what's happening culturally, but I do think it does influence and it can either reflect or sometimes you do see attempts by certain people to try to direct the culture in a certain direction through the entertainment. Because I was thinking about, and here I guess we can get into what's going on with movies and, and uh, all the social justice that's being injected into movies, but you know, you think about like a lot of these big pop culture franchises, Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who, the superhero stuff, like most of them were created by white guys uh, featuring mostly white cast and or white characters. And I think you've really kind of seen, particularly in recent years, but certainly in the past uh, decades, to try to 
kind of steer people away from those strong archetypes that existed. You know, I think, I guess, postmodern kind of came in and, and, and really kind of started presenting um, the anti-hero, um, started elevating that and uh, really start pushing towards what we see today, which I wouldn't even say a lot of these characters are even anti-heroes. They're just, <laughs> they're just kind of nihilistic uh, yeah. uh, characters. And so I, I think you see that, that postmodern influence that's been occurring since, you know, 70s, I guess, uh, married with a lot of the social justice who seek to kind of destroy these um, pop culture franchises, which really are, you know, kind of a modern mythology, you know, it's modern day mythos. And I think there's a kind of perverse pleasure a lot of uh, the people who are in Holly right now get from uh, trying to, to destroy these characters and these strong and male archetypes. Archetypes, yeah. Yeah. So you're the first person who told me about the Mary Sue arch- phenomenon. Is mm-hmm. that is it Mary Sue? Am I getting Mary right? Sue, yes, yes. Can you explain to anyone watching who's not familiar with this what, what Mary Sue is? So Mary Sue, the definition is obviously people have their own different definitions, but uh, as I understand it, Mary Sue's kind of to explain a character who has certain skills that are not shown as to how they have that skills. It's a character that the plot is really um, based around the plots and service of this character. And so uh, with their abilities that are not explained as to how they have those abilities to um, the character being a character that everybody naturally likes, um, just a character that doesn't have the true flaws and weaknesses that we normally expect uh, certain, you know, really all characters, but particularly heroes to have, because ultimately the heroes are supposed to have certain flaws that they wrestle with, but they ultimately overcome. And that's what gives that character an arc. And that's what we, the audience, we identify with their weaknesses and our insecurities or whatever. And then we, you know, admire how they overcome that. But uh, with the Mary Sue, those things are absent. And I think you're really seeing a kind of epidemic uh, going on in Hollywood right now, where you're seeing a lot of these um, franchises um, being uh, kind of commandeered by the, the feminist aspect of uh, social justice, which is which is odd too. Like I, I've been wanting to ask you, by the way, when it comes to social justice, how do you think it breaks down in terms of gender? And I'm talking about traditional gender. <laughs> Gotta say that. You gotta clarify. Yeah. Do you mean do you mean people who hold social justice ideology? Yes. Or how many? Oh, oh, I think it's I think it's majority women. Mm. And yeah, I think I think it's it's driven by women, and then you see men adopting it as either a reproduction strategy yeah. or um you know, I've seen a, lo- a lot of couples become infected with it and it goes one of two ways. I've heard from couples where it's almost always the woman who becomes woke and then they get divorced mm-hmm. because it's such a radically different ideology. It's not like, it's not like saying, oh, I'm a Republican and you're a liberal or you're a Democrat and we have, we have this, a shared worldview in, in terms of what is truth and what the world is like. We just have different policy opinions. I think mm-hmm. that's that you can exist together as a couple. One can be Democrat, one can be Republican, mm-hmm. although that's getting harder these days because social justice ideology, it's not simply a matter of different policy positions. It's a different ideology. It's, mm-hmm. They're not, they're not the same reality. They're not the same world. They're putting on these social justice glasses and looking at the world this way. And unless you, you as the spouse or partner put on those glasses too, you guys are living in two different realities. Right. And so it either, at least anecdotally and the people I know where it's infected, the couple usually comes in via the woman and then they either end up divorcing or the man converts to and becomes kind of this cucked, um, subservient you know sort of becomes emasculated within his relationship and that's the way i've seen it play out yeah uh, uh, i i yeah i think you're right because uh when i look at all these movies with star wars star trek and then other shows 
it seems like the feminist side of social justice is the one that's been dominant in Hollywood for the past few years. It's kind of one out, especially the more kind of white feminist side, because a lot of these uh, franchises that have traditionally had men uh, are now having females be the main protagonists, main heroes, and particularly whites. There are some, some black ones, but usually like the black, uh, you know, um, female heroes are coming more from male producers or, or male showrunners, whatever. But I am seeing a kind of a uh, large presence of the, the white feminists, you know. So you get someone like Brie Larson who, you know, claims to be feminist and all that. But mm-hmm. she, she talks about how Hollywood needs more diversity and more representation and more people of color and things. But she's playing Captain Marvel. She's a white woman. If she really believed in what she said, then why wouldn't she just step aside and say, hey, how about a woman of color <laughs> take my place? <laughs> and why stop there? How about yeah. a disabled woman of color? Exactly. Uh, it never stops. Because, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's getting so out of hand. And I don't know if you've been following what's going on with, with Star Wars, but, you know, Star Wars I, is really the kind I have it. Yeah, well, <laughs> well st- okay. the, the main, sh- I guess, producer, Kathleen Kennedy, she's a producer she produced alongside uh steven spielberg and i believe she got her start because of steven spielberg but uh she was put in charge of the star wars uh franchise when george lucas sold it to disney and it's been pretty clear that she's a a feminist and she's done numerous interviews where she talked about the need for uh diversity and representation and you know uh, in front and behind the camera. She hired a bunch of women to serve. I forget what she called it, but it was some group to work at Lucasfilm that's going to make decisions on, on certain things. And a lot of people, including myself, uh, assumed that it was her influence as to why the main protagonist in this new Star Wars sequel uh, has been uh, a woman, uh, particularly a woman who's not written well at all. Um, Would you say she's a Mary Sue to give people an example of the Mary Sue archetype? I guess it's an archetype now, but it's this female, usually a female character, at least in the way that I understand it, who is just is is sort of beloved by everyone on screen, is very talented, and you don't understand how. There's no explanation of how this person came to be came to acquire all of these talents. And they're just good at everything and they don't have any depth. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's the, the case with Ray, who's the main uh, character in the Star Wars sequels. Uh, there was no setup as to how um, she had certain abilities. Um, there's a scene in the very first movie she did in The Force Awakens in which uh, her and Finn find the uh, Millennium Falcon and she's able to pilot the Millennium Falcon even better than Han Solo. <laughs> yes. She, even she, even better than him. yes, and so she, it's never set up. They never tell the audience how she know how to fly a, a spaceship. Uh, at the very end of the movie, she beats Kylo Ren, the big baddie, um, very easily. And a lot of people go, "Whoa, Kylo Ren, uh, Ren was was injured." It was like, "Well, he just beat up Finn, the black guy, in like thirty seconds." Finn was a stormtrooper, former stormtrooper, at combat training, <laughs> who couldn't even fight. But yet she can somehow beat, you know, Kylo Ren, who's had uh, Jedi training. It doesn't make any sense. And that was another movie, too, where, like, Finn, like, he honestly should have been the main character. He had a much interesting backstory of being a former stormtrooper whose conditioning was broken when he experienced Mm -hmm. tremendous violence. That would have been a, if Disney really cared a lot about diversity then they would have made him the main character but i assume the reason why they didn't make him the main character is because of china because uh, i don't know if you heard about the poster issue they had the poster of the force awakens in china and the for- the, the poster here in the united states has all the characters including finn in china for the poster they removed finn because chinese a lot of them i'm not some race but a lot of them don't like black people and black people are ugly <laughs> yes a, a lot of chinese and the, the uh, they're not very friendly to to uh, a, a lot of black and, uh, blacks and black culture, and so you keep finding how Disney speaks it, wow. woke, but they, when it comes to making money, they don't fully um, embrace what they <laughs> preach. Yeah, well, because th- that's interesting, right? They can speak woke here, but 
nobody here, the woke people here are not even looking at what they do in China. Mm-hmm. So it's they the same can, thing with, yeah, yeah, same thing with the gay stuff. Like they always talk about putting more inclusion of gay characters, but when it comes to releases in, in China, they either cut stuff out or they just don't go as far as, you know, a lot of more activist types would want them in terms of having representation of gay characters in these movies. That's amazing. It's sort of, we're going to, we're going to kowtow to social justice ideology in the United States because that's what we view as culturally dominant. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to be hypocrites and we're going to kowtow towards anti-black racism in China because that's what we view to be culturally dominant. Like whatever we think is going to be, is going to help push our brand more in each country. We'll just do that. Exactly. Yep. And, you know, something uh, I was reading about Star Wars, and I don't know if this specifically was uh, used in the development of the new Star Wars sequels, but I do suspect that other movies are using this. But apparently the uh, USC uh, in California has a program or a, uh, yeah, a little program that they have some kind of software that analyzes movies and it counts up the amount of dialogue per character and they separate the characters on race and culture. And so they're able to produce this report saying, okay, 29% of the dialogue was said by female characters. And this percent was said by black characters and stuff. And I suspect that a lot of movies are using this in order to justify putting even more females in these powerful positions in these movies, because, um, I know I saw an article that was talking about how apparently if the females have a, uh, the, the amount of dialogues in a certain percentage, then that shows that they're not, um, they don't play a pivotal part in the plot of the story. And so I think a lot of, you know, feminist types in Hollywood are using this as further justification as to putting more, more female representation. And the problem is, it's not even, and again, it, I don't want to come off as saying someone is like, oh, I'm just against having women in these movies and stuff. It's not that. It's the fact that they're being written, not only in a poorly fashion, as I said earlier, but often the men are being written in a poorly fashion. And oftentimes you sense a, or or get a sense of this kind of mean-spiritedness that a lot of females have towards the the male characters. Because I think a lot, the the goal for uh, a lot of these Hollywood types is to try to change perceptions on gender roles. Mm -hmm. And so they're constantly trying to show women in positions of power and authority over men, and that the women have to be able to do things better than men. Doesn't mean that it can't be immoral because they'll still have uh, women in, in bad guy positions, but these women have to be more competent than the men always. Magically more competent. Cause yes. you gave me another example once of the Mary Sue character and uh, well, one was Captain Marvel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's her name? Brie Larson. Brie Larson. Yes. And isn't there a scene in that? I haven't seen this movie. But isn't there a scene where she also sort of punishes this guy for... Yes, this this guy, I guess he was hitting on her. And um, I can't remember exactly what he said, but uh, she ended up uh, going up to the guy and like grabbing his arm and like almost breaking it and then stealing his motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. And, she, and she's and the good guy. Yes, exactly. Because this guy was catcalling her. Because that's bad. And okay. so this is when she becomes a villain in the movie. <laughs> and, but she's also just really good at fighting and it's not really. Uh, she, she does have superpowers and stuff okay. that explains that, but she's still overpowered too. And it kind of makes it boring. And I know a lot of people trying to make comparisons with Superman and stuff. And maybe sometimes arguments do fly for Superman uh, as well. But I, I because a lot of people always say, you know, saying Mary Sue is kind of sexist and stuff. And I've heard people say that Mary Sue can be applied to men as well. Because there are male, um, you know, Mary Sues, or sometimes they're called Gary Stews, definitely. Gary uh, Stews. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know you're not a Star Trek fan, but in the first uh, first few seasons of Star Trek Next Generation, they had a character called uh, uh, Wesley, Wesley Crusher. And he was basically uh, kind of a stand-in for Gene Roddenberry. You know, Gene Roddenberry kind of wanted to put himself into the story. And so he's this whiz kid that magically knows how to do the jobs of trained Starfleet officers better than they can. And he's a character that most Star Trek fans hate. Uh, 
And so it's very similar, kind of kind of like Ray, you know, Star Wars. You got to get the sense that Kathleen Kennedy was kind of putting herself in the story. And I think it's a lot of the female writers in Hollywood. Um, a lot of them kind of have an inferiority complex, and so they kind of put themselves in these stories, but they they portray themselves as not having these weaknesses, and they're kind of overcompensating for. They're overcompensating because I think a lot of them do think that women are inferior to men. And so yeah. they're, they're trying to overcompensate. And so they have to constantly show women being, um, you know, like I said, smarter and more competent and able to beat up men twice their size. And it's just, it gets ridiculous and takes a lot of people out of the movies. What about the Batwoman trailer <laughs> that you showed oh, me? That was bad. Yeah, Batwoman. So uh, for anyone who's seen the trailer, uh, in trailer, Bruce Wayne, I guess, disappears and you know gotham city's wondering what happened to the batman and so his i believe it's his niece or cousin cousin he didn't have any you know brothers or sisters but his uh cousin uh he's a woman um apparently discovers that he's batman so she breaks into the bat cave and uh, she finds this guy governing um uh, who's guarding it i guess he's kind of the new alfred you know this black guy and uh, in a trailer, they show her go up to the bat suit and the Alfred character says, this suit is literal perfection. And she turns to the camera and goes, it will be once it fits a woman. And then you hear, <laughs> the, <laughs> you hear the theme song goes, I'm a woman. Like, this is real. Like, this is the actual song. And like, it was so over the top. I started thinking like, are they trying to troll like the anti SJW people, because <laughs> this is a that's a real thing. Like one of the the showrunners for you know Star Trek Picard, the new Star Trek show, did an interview in which he talked briefly talked about the anti SJWs, and he called them a sad uh, little corner of the toxic fandom, and said that wow. sometimes he thinks about putting stuff in the shows to purposely upset, you know, the anti SJWs, and so. I do think there's also a lot of spite in that. And yeah. I think that's part of why they, they double down. It's kind of like, a, was that Vox Day book? I haven't read it, but the SJWs always lie. They always project and they always double down. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the same thing. Like, cause you can read all of these articles by the people who either the, the people running uh, these shows or movies or the reviewers, these SJW type reviewers who love whenever these narratives are put in things. They don't actually care about the show or movies. They just love the narratives or put in there. But every time they attack people who criticize these SJW narratives, they say the same thing. It's, it's just like a, it's a template. They always say that the people criticizing SJW stuff in films are these 40 year old white guys living in their mom's basement and that they're upset that they're having their precious white um, characters, male characters taken from them. And I'm thinking this says more about the person saying that than it does the actual fans. Because I think they think that these uh, movies like Star Wars and Batman, all the things, I think they think it belongs to white men, these you know, 40 year old white men. And I think they get some kind of perverse pleasure from ruining it, kind of taking it away recasting all these traditional uh, characters, changing their race, changing their gender, and really like going back and in a lot of cases, changing the mythology that exists in a lot of these franchises that have existed for decades. Like they're, they're rewriting, they've rewritten the history of Doctor Who when they, they made Doctor Who a woman now. And, yeah, I quit uh, watching. Well, I quit watching before the Doctor became a woman because... I really, I love David Tennant. I liked mm -hmm. Christopher, uh, what's his name? Christopher Eccleston. Eccleston. I liked him too. I liked him too. And I love David Tennant. And after David Tennant, that guy that they picked. Matt Smith. Matt Smith. I just couldn't get with that doctor. And then I heard, <laughs> and then I heard they were making the doctor a woman. And it seemed like it was more of this virtue signaling and pandering. And instead mm -hmm. of just. I, it's hard to separate nowadays just what is a genuine um, interesting character arc or casting choice from what is simply a pandering to this belief system. Exactly. And well, like, uh, it, it, yeah. 
Sorry. Uh, well, it's kind of like the reboot of Battlestar Galactica that happened about 2003. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Before. I love the reboot. Yes, and they, they changed. Yeah, and they changed a bunch of the characters and made them yeah. women. But yeah. it wasn't... It wasn't it did, woke. It, it the, wasn't the, woke. The dynamic between the characters was still one of equal respect. You know, you didn't get a sense that they're trying to say that women were superior to men and that men were dogs, though. It's just everyone's kind of treated as, you know, being humans. And that's why there wasn't really a problem. I mean, there, there were some people who complained. They were more complaining about Starbucks was a woman now. But I would mm -hmm. argue, like, changing the genders and from the race of the characters kind of created a more interesting dynamic. It did. Like, it created a different dynamic between, you know, Starbucks and Apollo. Because I, I watched the original series. I love the original series as well. But reboots just, to me, on another level. And so comparing that to, say, you know, Doctor Who now, where it's very obvious that they have this animosity towards the male characters, especially white characters. There's a, a scene where uh, the doctor gets out of the TARDIS and they're meeting up with some, some, some man and the man didn't know that the doctor regenerated into a woman. And he's like, well, I was expecting a man. And she goes, well, oh, I've had an upgrade. Just <laughs> like all these little digs, which if, if men can make digs like that, for, against women then sure whatever but you know it's one-sided and so yeah. with, with, with Doctor Who they, they've not just with the casting but they start doing episodes that are beyond preachy that are painfully preachy like there's an episode get this uh, where the female doctor and companions go back to 1955 Alabama and they meet up with uh, guess who they meet up with uh, Rosa Parks and uh, <laughs> Yes, this is a real episode. They they help her oh. sit at the front of the bus. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> There's actually a scene in this where uh, her companions are, uh, one of them is a black guy, young black guy, and there's a uh, female Pakistani descent. And the black man, uh, he's sitting with her as they're hiding out. And he's like, man, I thought things were, were, were bad uh, here, but they're just as bad from where we came from. I just, I can't believe being a black man and I'm, I'm constantly being harassed by the police. It's just like something's never changed. And it's just this constant preaching and lecturing. It just, it completely takes you out of the episode. It's like, yeah. this is what happens. Like, yeah. this, these it becomes, was... it becomes moralizing. It's not yes. even, you're not even interested in telling us an engaging story anymore. You're interested more in giving us a moral lecture. Mm -hmm. And you're speaking down to the audience as if they don't already believe that exactly. people are equal regardless of race. Like you're, yeah. you're, you're presuming, yeah, you're talking down to your audience. Like I know all you rubes are racist, so we're going to show you this episode mm -hmm. to cure it. What? Uh, it's almost like they, 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 well, when you're talking about the superhero movies and some of the writers who've, the, who've said that they, enjoy they have it they have an idea of who the anti-sjw's are they think they're all hateful loser white men you know mm -hmm. in their parents basement and they're setting out to purposefully you know trigger them well if that's what you're doing then your purpose is no longer creating great art your purpose is trying to offend certain people that you think are out there and then and then your purposes are you, you that becomes more important to you being yes. offensive or whatever becomes, or your ideology becomes more important than making good art. Yes. That's, that's where, this is where we're at in modern day 2020. Like, and, and Hollywood's really experiencing, just like the sports world, they're, they're experiencing what happens when you're injecting all this SJW stuff. Cause now with, you know, the shutdowns and how that's affected Hollywood, there's going to be a lot of funding that dries up for a lot of these big projects. And the question is, is Hollywood going to still, pursue this path of enforcing in this ideology into products that even less people you know, want to see now, especially with everything going on. It just, I, I think they will. I think they're just, they're that obsessed with, with their, their ideology. They're living in a bubble. And I think a lot of these people, you know, even if they're not the true believers in it, I think believe that they can scapegoat their poor writing and blame it on these, you know, anti SJW types that they hate and so they could still continue to get jobs at least they think they're going to get jobs and i just think a lot of them won't and 
It's so funny, too, that they stereotype every person who opposes social justice ideology as being one particular yes. sex and race and sexuality. They're racist, yes. <laughs> they're total racist. It reminds me of when you and I went to see Jordan Peterson and we took that picture and it's like, oh, just a couple of angry white dudes hanging out at the Jordan Peterson <laughs> lecture. Because we were also told it's only angry white men going to see Jordan Peterson. I'm like, well, here we are, two angry white men. <laughs> You're yeah. on women. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 getting ridiculous, and uh, it brings me to my my love and joy Star Trek. Uh, I I just got to get background. So I I grew up Star Trek in the Next Generation, and that's you know played a huge part in in my development. Because the thing I always loved about Star Trek and science fiction in general is it kind of takes the cool aspect of like futuristic technology and really kind of shows you what's possible, but it pairs that with like morality plays and issues on ethics and, and morals. And to me, that kind of gives it another depth that goes beyond than just if it was just laser guns and stuff. But would you say they put the entertainment and the art first and then the moral principle or ethical principle they're teaching you second or no? Uh, I would say that yes, because with the original Star Trek, I think, oftentimes tend to view things more philosophically, I think. It used to be a lot more nuanced too as well, because oftentimes they'd have characters, the good guys who would take different positions. Uh, there was an episode that was a um, commentary on Vietnam and uh, the Federation um, decides to arm uh, half of a planet that's having a civil war in which the other side's being funded, trained by the Klingons. And in this episode, Captain Kirk's in favor of giving weapons to uh, these group on this planet, but uh, Dr. McCoy is against it. And there's a scene where both of them are making their points and each point is a good point from each side. And so I think that kind of dialogue that exists between the characters has been lost in Star Trek, where now it's more about, you know, preaching as we were talking earlier and telling the audience what's right, what's correct, what's moral, rather than uh, really trying to, to, to reduce things down to, to their, their moral principles or, or uh, what's, what's correct in, in terms of, you know, judging it by any kind of moral, true moral philosophy, which is kind of missing. And to, bear, to be fair, like Star Trek kind of after the original series started to getting a little bit more relativist, I think a little bit from time to time in which, uh, a lot of the characters on the good guys would look at a you know alien species and make a judgment about what they're doing is wrong, but use this um, reason, the prime directive or whatever, not to intervene in a situation in which clearly immoral actions are being taken place, which you Almost should like intervene. Cultural relativity or... Yes, exactly. Because like in, in the original Star Trek, Captain Kirk was not a cultural relativist. He was a moral absolutist and a universalist. Because the original Star Trek, like a lot of people say, it's like, oh, it's, you know, pro-commie, communist stuff. And I don't quite see it that way. Because the original Star Trek, you have to remember, was more than just Gene Roddenberry. There were a lot of other writers who developed the Star Trek mythos. And a lot of them served during World War II. And so you got to kind of think about that the context of the 1960s and what was going on and the way a lot of Americans viewed what America was, what the West was versus um, the Soviet Union. Because there were a number of episodes that were um, allegories or commentaries on communism where Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock would go down to a certain planet. They'd find that this planet at first appears to be utopian, but they would find that there's some computer, a robot, a alien, uh, ex Starfleet captain or somebody who's centrally planning this you know, society that's really um, restricting certain freedoms in order to maintain this supposed utopian society. And Captain Kirk would always use that appeal to this universal idea of individualism, how all beings in the universe have a right to be free and right for self-determination. He'd use that as a reason to disrupt um, the control of this mm -hmm. robot or alien or whatever. And so that kind of got a little bit more lost as things went on into the newer Star Trek. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. Um, but now when you get to the new Star Trek stuff, which, you know, Star Trek had been off the air since 2005. And so they brought it back, but under new people, 
who clearly didn't understand Star Trek and didn't have any philosophical bones in their body. <laughs> so they, it, it's, it's this new Star Trek stuff they've been producing is dark, it's nihilistic. They purposely ruin the Federation uh, because, you know, the Federation was just a, pro- and the Federation Starfleet was just a projection of the Enlightenment, broadly liberal humanist values into the future and saying that these are the values that are going to unite humanity. But in this new Star Trek Picard, Patrick Stewart plays Picard. He's a left-wing activist. And he's very out, he was very outspoken on uh, the election of Trump and Brexit and how much he hated both of those things. And so it's very obvious that he only wanted to return to Star Trek in order to make an allegory based on his view of the world. Like he specifically didn't want the new show to be anything like the next generation that he was a part of back in the 80s and 90s, which is beloved by many like myself. Like he didn't want any of the same characters, you know, want the look to be the same, but he understood it as an allegory. Star Trek's known to, for political allegories. And so uh, he, it was obvious when you watch the show that they're trying to make an allegory to legal immigration. And first of all, I think his views towards Trump and Brexit are not particularly nuanced. You know, when you talk about legal immigration or the refugee crisis going on to Europe, there's a lot of issues with, you know, competing value systems and that a lot of people who are coming into these countries are not being allowed or not being forced to assimilate. They're actually given um, incentives not to assimilate and when the governments are making them eligible for various types of benefits. It kind of gives you a sense of not assimilate because assimilation is hard. I mean, how many people from America could you dropped off in Japan and they would be able to learn Japanese and learn customs and everything? Mm-hmm. Probably not a lot, but if, you know, the whole population of Texas, you know, nearly 30 million people moved to Japan or were given, you know, benefits by the government, then there's going to, there's enclaves are going to form in which a lot of people kind of preserve you know, that American slash Texan culture. And, and they don't, don't have, they don't have to assimilate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so what he and a lot of the other Star Trek people who speak out against Trump um, and Brex and all the other things miss is that they, Star Trek, like I said, you know, some moment ago, the Federation of Starfleet are unified by certain values. It's very homogenous. It, it's diverse, definitely in terms of the alien life forms and stuff. But what a lot of these people miss when they keep saying Star Trek's by diversity and Trump needs to watch Star Trek because you can get diversity. It's not diverse in its culture. It's homogenous. There's a single set of values that unite everyone. They unite, you know, hundreds of planets. You know, whenever they invite new planets to be part of this union, this, you know, United Nations of Space, essentially, they do these um, investigations on these plans to see if their values, if their, their history, their culture is a match to what exists in mm-hmm. the Federation. But that's not what's occurring here in the United States or in Europe. And so Patrick Stewart and the other people miss this completely and want to view things as, oh, the only reason why people would object to illegal immigration or refugees going to Europe is because of xenophobia and racism, which is not true. There's many other reasons. This this hits upon, I think, Carter talks about this a lot um, on on Safe Space, about how people, we we have this word culture, and it, it means two very different things depending on how it's used. Culture can mean aesthetic things, like art and music, food and dress and things like that. And, and obviously th- those have no moral value weight to them. Of I, I don't have a problem with saying I can enjoy all cultures if equally, if what you mean is food and music and dance and, and you know, the way people dress and that kind of culture, but culture also means something different. It means you can have ideas foundational beliefs and principles that are viewed as important. So, and in that case, no, all cultures are not equal. You can't appreciate all cultures equally. Some cultures say it's okay to kill gay people and to, to force women to wear coverings and to stone women to death. I mean, there are, there are definitely, you can make some cultural judgments um, if you're ta- what you're talking about are the ideas and the values. Exactly, because a lot of people, when they say multiculturalism, they're talking about, like you said, kind of the surface level, like the food and maybe a little bit of language. But most of the time, they're using it to mean like multiracialism, mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a term. 
And, you know, they, 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 the, the true multiculturalists, you know, there are true multiculturalists who believe that you can have like a bunch of different groups in one, you know, area with completely different cultural values still coexist. And that's, that's not going to occur, especially if you have that utopian mindset, you know, that Star Trek has. And a lot of the people who claim to like Star Trek like say, oh, we want to be like Star Trek and, you know, nationalism and all of that stuff gets in the way of that. It was like, well, I understand that, you know, there is kind of a unified global system in, in, you know, Star Trek. But like I said earlier, it's all about the values that unite everybody. In the real world, how do you unite people with differing values without using violence? How do you do that? If you were to acknowledge that this is very complex, very hard problem to solve, then you can get a wealth of stories out of that for Star Trek or even other shows and stuff. But these people are so dumb and so blinded by their ideology that they don't see that and they don't really care. And, and the problem with the, with the Star Trek was not only that, but typically when Star Trek did those political allegories, typically they did it so the bad aspects that they were talking about occurring in modern day uh, society were reflected in the alien species, not, you know, the Federation of Starfleet. But this Star Trek Picard breaks that cardinal rule and decides to make a direct parallel between the way Patrick Stewart and the other writers see the world and making Starfleet and Federation be that. And so they ended up making Starfleet, you know, robophobic, which is essentially trying to parallel the xenophobia that they think Mm -hmm. dominates America and the West. And this ends up killing that hopeful vision of the future that Roddenberry and the other writers had. Because that was the whole point. Like, no matter how dark things got in the 1960s, with all the, with the Vietnam War, the violence in the you know, South with civil rights, the political assassinations, despite that, the writers still had an optimistic view of the future that humanity would overcome that and be united by these values of this broadly liberal individualist values for, for humanity. But that's gone. These people have destroyed that vision of the future. And everything because of that is just dark, is nihilistic. There's no guiding light for anything. It's just, it's, it's disgusting. I absolutely hate it. And I feel your pain and your disappointment being a fan and watching something like that get destroyed with somebody's beliefs, somebody's perverted, I, I would say perverted belief system. Because they, when I say perverted, I mean, up is down, down is up. What they say is good is bad. You know, um, th- that happened to one of my favorite books is um, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. It was my favorite book when I was 16. It probably stayed my favorite book for for a, a, a couple of decades. <laughs> um, and and I love her as a writer in general. I like, I've read almost everything she's written. And that book was turned into have you seen the series the showtime that's doing it i haven't so the first season is pretty good and they stay pretty true to the book but what happened is that the writers and the the showrunners i I assume um placed their own ideology their own way of looking at the world and their own interpretation of what's going on which i think is wrong they have a they're not watching the right movie if they look out at the world and they say, oh, Trump is the boogeyman and the fundamentalists that we need to watch out for right now are Christian fundamentalists and conservatives. That's not the world we're living in right now. You're watching the wrong movie. But anyway, they took that worldview of theirs and they tried to do the same thing of what you're describing on the second season. The second season is basically an SJW fever dream um, where they just completely pervert the book and try and turn it into some allegory for living in Trump's America, which it's, it ruined it for, I mean, I still, it hasn't ruined it for, I love the book. It's just that when I see, when I see representations of the book now out in popular culture or see people at pro at stupid resist protest dress like handmaidens, or I'm just like, wow, you haven't even, I I'd probably, I'd be willing to bet to put down some good money uh, uh, on the assumption that you haven't even read the book that you don't even get. And if you did, you don't even get what you don't get what it's about. Almost like this Patrick Stewart having been in this series and still not getting what it's about. 
Exactly. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that it was diff- the book was different from the show. I just knew of the show and knew that a lot of famous liked it because of the kind of pro-abortion and they're being subjugated or oppressed by men. Well, it, it actually, it, she was inspired by, when she wrote this book, it, by what was going on in some Muslim-majority countries. It was more about Islam islamic fundamentalism and also yeah sure this could happen you can we can all envision a dystopian future where another type of fundamental christian fundamentalist is what you know in the book is what happens and you could envision that for sure but she modeled it on what was already happening in other places and and to divorce it from that and to pretend and then to pretend like we're living in this dis- christian fundamentalist dystopia in the united states no we're not <laughs> Christians, Christians lost the culture war in the nineties. Like you were talking about, like they've already lost it. Yeah. They're not culturally the ones setting the standard at the moment. They're counterculture now. So, um, but, and, and anybody who's, who hasn't seen it yet, I do like the first season because with the first season ends pretty much where the book ends. That's why the second season, they're just making stuff up because there's nothing to go on. You know, they just mm-hmm. wrote what they wanted to. And it seems kind of like a trend. I've, I I don't watch like a whole lot of new stuff, but I do hear from time about a lot of shows that start off well, but end up becoming woke by the second mm-hmm. season, which is really, really sad and, and almost bizarre. It's almost like there's somebody in the some department and some studio that's checking to see, wait, do you, do you have any woke stuff in here? Oh, you don't? Oh, you need to put this in here. By the oh, second gosh. season. Because it yeah. keeps happening over and over again. And especially with, you know, like you're saying earlier about the kind of anti-Trump stuff and the way that mirrors, you know, the way they view Trump's America. Like some of the stuff, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't care as much if it wasn't present in so many different things. Cause there are a lot of, you know, I was trying to make a point to my, my, my parents and I didn't quite get me, but you know, you've seen in the last few years, you've seen a lot, a lot of movies come out, you know, about, you know, slavery and Jim Crow area, you know, you know, uh, 12 Years a Slave and, you know, Django Unchained and mm-hmm. you had The Butler and you had other stuff. And I was telling him, like, I don't, obviously this stuff you shouldn't forget, you know, it's history. We need to be reminded of that. And it's fine having these movies and stuff. But when this is like most of what we see, when you think about like black movies, it's either like historical stuff like this or it's entertainment, you know, biopics. And there's not a lot of movies that are, talking about like black scientists they're not talking about say the black soldiers that fought on a confederate side uh they're not talking about things that would surprise people it's just it's reinforcing the same points and mm-hmm. on top of that linking it to today like mm-hmm. black Klansmen. like watch a little bit of black Klansmen, and the very end they have a segment where they start talking about donald trump they show donald trump like you're talking about seven you're talking about david duke and then they put in Donald Trump and this kind of stuff is just getting so frustrating, so annoying, just constantly knowing how many people are just being exposed to this stuff over and over and over mm-hmm. again and, and how it's forming their view of reality based yeah. solely on the entertainment that they're, they're watching. It's just, it's, it's kind of amazing. Again, kind of like bring it full circle about like what conservatives were so concerned about the, 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 the question of just how much influence entertainment has on the minds of people, especially the youth, which has always been a big thing conservatives argue, you know, and of course you always hear some conservatives talk about video games and how they create violence, which I don't fully buy into. But, you know, with these movies, certainly I, I do think it is influencing the way people view themselves in society. And like, that's their evidence that backs that up. It's no real life evidence to say things are as bad as they believe it is. It's purely based on fiction. Yeah. What did you, you're making me think of the movie Get Out. What did you yes, think Yes, I just Get watched Out? that show actually, uh, movie. Uh, uh, I, you know, people were saying that there was some kind of parallels or to, to, to what was going on. I didn't quite see that. First, I thought they were going, I don't want to spoil it, but I thought they're going to make a, some parallel between, or trying to say that, you know, white people are corrupting you know, black people are forcing black people to assimilate into white culture. I mm-hmm. thought that, but the twist at the end didn't quite make me believe that. So I didn't quite see it that way. I mean, perhaps there, but I, I, I didn't quite see it. Um, did, you, did you watch it? I did. It's been a while since I saw it. And I, 
I really loved Key and Peel, and I was excited to see the film because I also like horror and I thought this was going to be a great movie. Maybe, maybe it was so built up for me that it was going to be great that I was disappointed, but I was a little disappointed. And part of that also was because I thought they are trying to offer a commentary, an allegory for where they see race relations today. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought they were trying to do. Maybe they weren't, but it seemed like that's what they're doing. And in some of their interviews, it seemed like that's what they were doing when they talk about the film. Like, this is how, this is what it's like. It's an allegory for what's going on in the same way that Stepford Wives was an allegory for what was going on with women in the seventies and pushing out of the kitchen, out of domestic spaces into the workplace, right. With the the second wave of the feminist movement. And I just thought that's not really true. I don't think that's where we're at today. Racially. I think you could have made this movie in a different time and it would have been more of a, a representation of where we're at. But today it, it almost felt to me like, again, they're trying to say, that reality is a little different than what it is. Mm-hmm. It would be like if they made Stepford Wives today and tried to say that's how this is an allegory for the current status of women. No, it's not. Not today. <laughs> not today. Um, you know, and I like the Stepford Wives, but it, it has a place in time. When they did the remake, it didn't make sense to me because we'd already moved so far in those ensuing decades from the original that the remake of Stepford Wives was like, this is so divorced from where we're at currently you know, the state of women it's it's just it was pointless to do that movie again um, and you know sometimes i think too that sometimes these people making uh these movies and shows they're trying to put in the woke stuff sometimes they think they think they're too smart and they they tend to to get some messaging across but sometimes they, due to their lack of skill are unable to communicate that and and so it ends up maybe not quite saying what they want to say. Because like, I was watching uh, Star Trek Discovery, which is one of the new Star Trek shows, which sucks as well. And uh, before it came out, it came out in like 2017. A lot of the writers were making comments about Trump and all this stuff. And it's pretty clear that they're trying to make an allegory between the, the clean-ons and what they view Trump supporters as being, you know, isolationism and, and, and xenophobia and stuff. But when I was watching, I got the sense, like, this actually seems more like Islamic extremist than it does their view of what Trump supporters are. I don't know if anyone else kind of, you know, viewed it that way, but it seemed to me like it came more across like that. And I know that that's not their intent at all. That's not their intent. But yeah. they're so blind. They're so blind to, they'll ignore they'll ignore the, you know, Islamic fundamentalism. And Mm -hmm. as we talked about earlier, they'll even ignore entirely what's happening in China and other places. So it makes sense. They wouldn't even realize they're making this other allegory by mistake. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, it's (laughs) like like usually other comparison, either they can't do very well in terms of putting messaging or subverting things, or it's just very like completely on the nose. It's like, (laughs) it's not not really in in between. It's like, you're done. poorly they can't get that messaging across or the messaging is completely obvious yeah well well chris i wanted to show this clip from this crazy pilot that you sent me this tv show that i had never heard of but i think we're running short on time so why don't we save it for our second episode yeah want to do that okay yeah let's do that that way we'll have a real treat for you guys if you tune in for our second uh what are we calling this we're gonna call it Popped, popped culture. Uh, I, I was trying to think of all sorts of names. I, came, I was thinking like Red, White, and Mary Sue. I don't know, but that was dumb. <laughs> I, was just thinking, I was just like thinking stuff. They're all dumb, but I was like, well. oh, I'm wearing some red and white today. <laughs> um, okay, thank you guys for joining us. This has been the first episode of our new series, Fill in the Blank, and uh, my name's Carrie Smith. And I'm Chris. Someone called me Mystery Chris last time. I like that. Mystery Chris. Mystery Chris and <laughs> Carrie Smith. And you've been watching Unsafe Space. If it's your first time watching, uh, check out our other series, Deprogrammed, which is a deep dive into social justice ideology, or our live shows that uh, Carter Laren and I do on Mondays and Fridays called Coffee Break. You can find us online at unsafespace.com. If you want to support us, you can hit like and subscribe on this video and share it with a friend. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Thank you. 
Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please report any sightings to your local Ministry of Love. Did you know that 97.1% of corporate media employees agree that corporate media is objective and fair? If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Here's a fun fact, the freedom of speech has never included the right to criticize Marxists. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.